The American Society for Radiation Oncology 2022 Annual Meeting took place on the 23rd to the 26th of October 2022 in San Antonio, Texas. We had loads of great updates and discussions during the meeting and spoke to the presenters of some of the biggest trials. Professor Gioti Mayadev of the University of California, San Diego, gave us an update on the Phase 3 CALA trial, which investigated Devalumab and chemoradiotherapy for cervical cancer. Yeah, the CALA trial, um, it was remarkable in the sense it's a large, global, prospective, double-blinded, placebo-controlled, randomized trial in patients with high-risk cervical cancer. And we chose this high-risk cervical cancer subgroup because these patients really constitute an unmet medical need. They have historical recurrences of more than 50%. And so there's a high percentage in terms of desired enrollment for stage three, stage four, node positive patients, both pelvic node positive and periodic node positive. And so it was a it was a large global trial that took 770 patients and randomized them to the addition of Dervalumab concurrently and sequentially to chemoradiation versus chemoradiation alone. Our findings were that, you know, number one, CALA is one of the largest global trials in cervical cancer to date. And we had more than 120 sites, over 15 countries participating. And we had a remarkable number of patients who were of Hispanic origin. So 45% from Latino, Latin America were enrolled on the CALA trial. So it's truly global and remarkable in that regard. In terms of the subset analysis, we um, looked at high-risk patients in terms of periodic node disease, pelvic node disease, uh, as well as those patients who uh, had you know, the number of cycles of chemotherapy. The majority of patients received more than four cycles of chemotherapy. 95% uh, of patients received brachytherapy, which is almost unheard of in terms of a global response to brachytherapy. And that was really because we had a very robust radiation quality assurance and control on the CALA trial. We had a global radiation therapy steering committee. I was chair of that committee. We met regularly. We discussed the cases. We also reviewed the external beam plans. We looked at the brachytherapy plans within one week of therapy. Uh, and it was extremely robust. If a patient had a deviation in terms of the steering committee thought that there was something that could have been improved upon for the external beam plan or brachytherapy, the site was given feedback in a timely manner. And actually, if a patient was not going to receive brachytherapy, we had to know, and myself as the, as the uh, PI on the study and the radiation study chair, uh, I actually personally contacted those sites and we were able to convert several patients back to brachytherapy. In terms of the impact of Dervalumab, we found that radiotherapy, external beam, chemotherapy, and brachytherapy were able to be given in a timely fashion as well as in, in a complete fashion. And uh, the impact of Dervalumab did not change that. Dervalumab in and of itself did not increase progression-free survivals between the arms based on subgroup analysis. So at this point, our conclusions are that 
high risk, node positive or locally advanced cervical cancer treated with the technologically advanced chemo radiation and brachytherapy did as well as those patients who received the Dervalumab arm. So, um, you know, the CALA trial was really remarkable in terms of setting a new benchmark for global radiation therapy, quality assurance and control and technology. I will note that more than 85% of patients on this trial received IMRT and a very high percentage, more than two thirds, were treated with image-guided brachytherapy. And also within the CALA baseline characteristics, we found that the pdl one status on these patients as determined by the tumor area probability score was greater than or equal to 1% and greater than 91% of patients, greater than 5%, and about 77 to 81% of the patients based on the arm. This is very high. Again, in terms of the um, progression-free survivals, at 12 months, we found no difference in the arms uh, between the addition of dervalumab versus placebo. Dervalumab and chemoradiation had a 76% one-year progression-free survival, and the placebo arm had a 73%. At two years, that dropped. However, there was, again, no difference. 66% in the dervalumab arm, 62% in placebo chemoradiation arm with a p-value of 0.174, hazard ratio of 0.84. The maturity and the follow-up is about 18 months on this study with the maturity being 31%. We also heard from Professor Laura Dawson from Princess Margaret Cancer Center on a phase three study of serafinib and SBRT for hepatocellular carcinoma. So the uh, statistical design of this study was a randomized phase three design that was designed to look for a clinically meaningful and statistically significant improvement in overall survival. Um, early in the pandemic, the standard of care systemic therapy did change for patients with hepatocellular carcinoma from serafinib to uh, immunotherapy uh, options, atezolizumab and bevacizumab, and now more and more options are becoming available for these patients. So since that standard of care changed, we did close the study earlier than anticipated. And with minor modifications, the most um, obvious being that there is a lower power to detect a difference, uh, have, have read out the uh, clinical outcomes now. And those are the results I am presenting at ASTRA. The first report of the primary endpoint and uh, secondary endpoints of progression-free survival and adverse events at the meeting. So there were 193 patients randomized, uh, 177 who met all of the eligibility criteria, and approximately three quarters of those patients had macrovascular invasion. So very advanced patient population group. The median tumor diameter was approximately eight centimeters up to uh, 19 centimeters. Uh, a small amount of extrahepatic disease or cancer was also uh, permitted. So these are patients with very advanced cancers up to five foci of HCC where systemic therapy is the standard of care. So the um, uh, outcomes of the study are very exciting. So there were um, clinically meaningful improvements in all endpoints. So the improvement in overall survival was uh, impressive with a change of median overall survival from approximately 12 months to 16 months in these patients with a hazard ratio of 0.77. And that 16 month um, 
median survival is impressive, even in the era of immunotherapy, um, especially considering many of these patients were treated um, before immunotherapy when serafinib was just came out. And when we considered the known prognostic factors, patient performance status, the liver function, um, whether there was metastases or not, and the degree of vascular invasion, that overall survival uh, remained important with a hazard ratio of 0.72 and uh, statistical significance with P.042. So uh, very nice to see uh, that improvement in overall survival. And it did appear to be uh, somewhat more marked in patients with more advanced disease, i.e. those who had main portal vein or main right-left portal vein invasion. And although looking at subgroups is hypothesis generating, and that was 112 patients who had that degree of major vascular invasion. And in that particular subgroup, the median overall survival uh, benefit was very marked. So from 8.8 months with serafinib alone to 28.4 months with serafinib and SBRT. So consistent with our prior hypothesis that these patients are challenging to treat, they often don't have a response to the, the systemic therapy of serafinib or other tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And if a therapy like radiation could be used and open um, up the vessels, then those patients may go on to have uh, you know, survival benefits. So in addition to overall survival benefits, there were uh, very important differences seen in progression-free survival and time to progression as well. There was uh, the median progression-free survival improved from 5.5 months to 9.2 months. And the time to progression more than doubled from a median of 9.5 months to 18.5 months. And fortunately, when we looked at adverse events and toxicity, there was no um, in change in adverse events with the addition of SBRT. Uh, specifically, all GI bleeding events were similar um, in both arms, 6% in serafinib arm, 4% in SBRT and serafinib arm. And this is likely because symptoms occur from patients' cancers that progress, their cirrhosis, as well as their treatments. And it's very challenging to someone times distinguish uh, what is occurring from what. So if we have better tumor control and specifically better control of the vascular invasion, hopefully patients will experience less uh, clinical events. So yes, very happy to see um, improvements in all of our end end, uh, outcomes that we studied without increased toxicity. Dr. Julian Hong of the University of California, San Francisco, discussed the latest updates in artificial intelligence research in oncology from Astro 2022. The theme of uh, Astro this year was artificial intelligence and emotional intelligence. And I think those two things really complement each other. Um, as I sort of mentioned earlier, um, I think AI can give uh, sort of free up clinicians from sort of the uh, documentation tasks, you know, a lot of the sort of um, uh, tasks that could benefit from automation and give um, clinicians more time with the patient. And Erin Gillespie from Memorial Sloan Kettering sort of highlighted this in, in one of her talks in the presidential symposium. Um, the um, sort of broad theme, um, we had a couple of sessions sort of discussing uh, the fundamentals of, of AI in, uh, in sort of, I, I guess, pertinent to radiation oncology, and maybe like, I guess I'd say oncology more broadly. Um, so the sort of first highlight session was oriented around discussing sort of different things that are, um, I guess, different types of technology that are close to sort of ready for 
you know, prime time or I guess more evaluation. So there's discussion on things like radiation treatment planning, which I think is a natural application um, of of AI. So uh, either um, auto segmentation type tasks, so helping to identify uh, normal structures or targets on a CT scan um, or radiation treatment planning, sort of developing how a radiation plan should be designed. Um, there was a lot of discussion on that. There was discussion on sort of computer vision applications and patho on pathology slides. Um, and um, and those were kind of the highlights of of, of the first session. The second uh, presidential symposium uh, session um, was focused more on sort of the long-term vision of where AI can take us um, and sort of how can it improve cancer care. Um, so touching on a few of the things that that we were discussing earlier. So um, how, how do we how do we better design clinical trials with AI? How do we implement AI and evaluate them appropriately in clinics to make sure that they're actually both accurate but also beneficial for patients? Um, how we can sort of support us in the long term. Um, and then a couple of interesting topics as well, sort of focused on um, social determinants of health um, and how uh, that data is aggregated and how important that is, especially in the context of potential bias and algorithms. Um, and then uh, uh, the last sort of, I think, unique topic was knowledge aggregation um, and uh, a discussion of sort of how um, we can share clinical knowledge, make it more broadly acceptable to or, uh, uh, accessible to physicians um, around the world who have questions um, that we're asking um, and sort of fundamentally make it make a knowledge library. So. Um, those were the kind of highlighted themes at Astro. There were a number of sort of other like scientific sessions uh, presenting work, um, uh, different types of applications of AI. Um, the um, you know, one of the um, things that we that we presented um, that ended up uh, being highlighted was um, our work on uh, uh, our AI um, models based on uh, wearable devices, uh, where they aggregate sort of activity data during um, patients' treatment, um, and how we can use that uh, to improve sort of clinical management, um, which hopefully will get implemented on a on a cooperative group trial. Um, the other things that I can think of that that got highlighted. Um, uh, I think there was a um, there was a session um, on um, essentially international efforts in AI and trying to coordinate different. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I think Astro um, uh, is by nature sort of. Um, I guess it's in its name, but Astro is um, uh, uh, U.S. centric, but we have a number of sort of international collaborators, and it was good to kind of hear their um, you know thoughts and experience on uh, like. Uh, around the world on on sort of advancing advancing AI, um, but um, I think there were a lot of um, like neat sessions with different types of applications, and I think there are a lot of like exciting things that are coming through the pipeline in, in radiation oncology and oncology in general. So there was um, there was also a session on just to kind of round things out in case there's anything interesting here. Um, but there was a session on uh, natural language processing as well. Um, a lot of opportunities for. NLP in um, parsing clinical data um, and uh, trying to improve uh, the types of information we can get out of out of routinely collected um, data as well. Um, there was a I think a well attended session on AI AI fairness and bias, which kind of um, uh, dovetails with uh, some of the topics that were emphasized during the presidential symposium. Um, but uh, I think uh, it's an area that is increasingly being appreciated for how important it is. Um, and um, I know that that session was also particularly 
um, well attended. Um, so uh, I guess those are kind of the main highlights I can I can think of that that are sort of worth mentioning too. Dr. Osama Mohammed of the University of California, San Francisco, also talked on the theme of this year's Congress and discussed advances in digital pathology and artificial intelligence for prostate cancer. I presented in Astro uh, our work over the past few years on developing digital pathology AI tools for prostate cancer. So we basically, uh, I basically showed data from two different projects. One of them is developing a prognostic biomarker for prostate cancer, which shows for patients with untreated prostate cancer, who will do well and who will not do well. And this is uh, this has been recently published in, uh, in, a, in a paper in Nature Digital Medicine, and it showed that patients uh, could be stratified based on um, digital pathology AI biomarkers into those who have a high risk of recurrence and those who have low risk of recurrence. And that biomarker has been uh, uh, approved, has been included in the, um, in the NC and guidelines that were just published last month. And the second part of the of the of the talk was about developing a predictive biomarker for prostate cancer. And predictive means it can predict who will respond to a certain treatment. And we focused on those patients who uh, who will need radiation. And the question was, do they benefit from adding hormone therapy to the treatment? And we showed that we can we using AI we can identify the patient who will benefit from radiation therapy plus hormone therapy and those who will not need hormonal therapy and so we showed data from both uh, for both prognostic and predictive biomarkers and using ai tools and i argued that uh, there are still lots of channel challenges to applying AI, ai tools in the clinic but they are coming and we'll just have to deal with them and we'll just have to lead the way with the science and the clinical applications we talked to some speakers about the unmet needs and challenges in the field of radiotherapy Dr. Alejandro Romero of the Erasmus MC Cancer Institute in Rotterdam explained some of the challenges of treating patients with hepatocellular carcinoma with radiotherapy. I think the um, the most important point and, and the, the, the nicest also when you are treating patients with hepatocellular carcinoma is that you really need to find a good balance between um, let's say, killing the tumor and controlling the tumor, and at the same time, to preserve the liver function of the patients. Because these patients have, an, um, the underlying liver function of these patients is frequently not so good. This makes the treatment so um, so special and, and so um, yeah, different also from, from, from other treatments in the liver but the thing is it's it's uh, to buy to find the, the good balance between the two the best local control of the tumor with the best preservation of the liver function this is the the most challenging point in the treatment of patients with hepatocellular carcinoma in my opinion and the other thing um the unmet needs i think that Essentially, we really need to generate data because um, we have already a lot of data, but we really need to be uh, included in treated 
guidelines. At this moment, radiotherapy is not included in treatment, in treatment guidelines all over the world. And here in the Netherlands, we, we include it. Also, there are countries where it's included, but there are um, treatment strategy guidelines like the Barcelona Clinic Liver Cancer System, where radiotherapy is mentioned as yeah, it seems that it controls the tumor, but we need more data. And until the data is is there, probably they will not include us in this kind of, of systems. And I think this is one of the unmet needs. We really need to to be, let's say, considered from in my perspective as one of, of the Treatment, treatment options to for patients with hepatocellular carcinoma. And um, also another unmet need, I think, is to make the treatment available for all patients in the world. I mean, all patients that could benefit for from SBRT, that we can treat them with radiotherapy. These are the points that I, I think I... I um, I'd like to mention. Dr. Jamie Takayasu from the University of Michigan discussed disparities in the assessment of sexual function of men and women undergoing radiotherapy for GU cancers. We, the study was done in two parts. The first part was more of a retrospective review of the patients who are seen in our clinic for brachytherapy treatment for either cervical cancer or prostate cancer. And I was really just looking at at the time of consult, what percent of patients were being asked about their sexual function. And for men, while pretty much 90% of men are being asked about sexual function on a regular basis at the time of consult, for women, it's really only 13%. And that was a really, really big and striking disparity. And because of that, I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just a finding at our institution, but also nationwide. And so we also looked at clinicaltrials.gov and trying to see all of the studies being done across the U.S. And while the disparity wasn't quite as large, it's still pretty striking the um, number of trials looking at sexual function and studying sexual function in men for, again, prostate brachytherapy is 17% versus for women, it's only 6%. So uh, a, a really big difference between the two groups. Finally, Dr. Emily Doherty of the University of Cincinnati talked on the potential role of flash radiotherapy for cancer treatment. This is the beginning, right? So this could be something that, you know, years from now could be practice changing, right? If we find that we're able to deliver radiation in this way, potentially we can revolutionize how we're treating patients. You know, if we can, um, it might allow us to deliver higher doses with less side effects. Um, perhaps we give the same doses, but we have very minimal to no side effects. Um, I think one thing that we're all interested in too is some of these diseases where we've really not made that much progress or very modest progress. Like if we think of things like pancreatic cancer, you know, where radiation is always these days limited by how much you can give by the side effects and what, no what normal organs are around. So when you have something in the abdomen, there's a lot of sensitive organs around there where you you know really can't give that high of a dose. You know, is that why we don't really have that much of a role in pancreatic cancer, or why you know it may be you know um, 
perhaps you know we can deliver it using flash radiation and then we have minimal to no side effects but able to give that dose that we need to get rid of the cancer or um, another area of our interest too is what about the immune response so when flash is delivered so fast i mean the treatment is delivered in milliseconds so you know there's a lot of things that happen on the cellular level and chemical level um, very 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 quickly and when as a as radiation is traveling through the cell the patient so some of these chemical steps and biologic steps don't have time to happen when flash so you know we're learning what this flash effect how it how it happens um, but presumably there's also some things going on with the immune system if we're skipping that step or maybe missing you know missing a step or something is happening that normally doesn't you know what happens what happens there can we use immunotherapy you know does that help you know will immunotherapy help in that case can we combine the two um you know that would certainly after we assess the safety of everything that's something that we can be looking at you know so that would be a bit down the road but certainly an area we're thinking of um, another thing too could be you know certain pediatric diseases like um, diffuse pontine glioma dipg um, that has um, a, a terrible um, you know five-year survival you know uh, for patients and kids so you know a lot of times radiation is really the main treatment we have because of it's in the brainstem we can't really take it out surgically but you know these kids recur time and time and again and it's also in a sensitive area you know the brainstem and the brain are right there so what if you know potentially flash has a role there you know maybe we can be helping these kids either you know by delivering more dose safer you know um I think there's a lot of different ways that we can think about it and a lot of different ways that it can go um I mean the potential of it um, I think you know is vast. We just got to slowly start at the beginning and incrementally figure out, you know, how how it goes in humans. And so this is the first clinical trial um, of it. So so we'll see. That wraps up our top picks for Mastro 2022. There was lots more brilliant research presented at the conference. So take a look at vjoncology.com to find more interviews and discussions. If you want to hear more from us, then check out our podcasts, which can be found on our website and streaming on your favourite podcast app, including Spotify and Apple. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more of the latest updates in oncology research.